0: Well, we're into week four of our series on Job, and uh, we're reaching the end of the story. And uh, the end of a story is usually the part that we love the most, right? If you've a person that reads books, there's these great novels that have seemingly insurmountable obstacles that people are facing, and somehow at the end, through great struggle, they come to a spot of victory, and everyone celebrates and is excited. Um, We love the end of uh, those romantic comedy movies, if you're a fan. Some people call them rom-coms, where this just this unlikely couple they should never end up together, and then there's all of these hijinks and awkward moments and people bumping into each other. And, but somehow, towards the end of this movie, they all end up together. Uh, we love great sporting events where the Flames score a winning goal in triple overtime. We're believing we'll have one of those seasons coming up shortly with more wins than losses. But we love it, right? The end of the story. So that's where we're starting today is, is heading to the end of this book of Job that we've been journeying through. And I'd love to hear, hear from you, actually, if there's things that have resonated with you or things that have gone, hmm. That was actually helpful or something I hadn't thought. Or even if you have questions, you can go ahead and shoot me a a no. Wendy Jones sent me a little email this week that was just encouraging. She said, actually, this Job study has been pretty helpful for my own situation, and that was just very kind. Um, But it's an odd book, and we're reaching the end here, so... Maybe you've been away for a few weeks, but I'll just give you a quick recap on the story of Job so far so that we're all kind of on the same page this morning. So right back to chapter one of Job, we know that Job was a man of complete integrity who feared God, complete integrity who feared God. Then Satan, the accuser, comes around, you'll remember from week two, and says, ah, he just follows you because you bless him, and you look out for him, and you make his life easy, and that's the only reason that he serves you, and and he asks God if he can test Job. Then we find that Job ends up in this uh, period of, well, really incredibly difficult suffering. He loses all of his wealth. He loses all of his kids, and then he loses his health, and he's really reduced to a shell, essentially, of who he was before. Even his friends kind of desert him, uh, except for three. Three friends who come, and they gather, and at first they're great, and they just sit with him in silence and comfort him, But then they end up in this spot where they're debating Job and just arguing with him for seemingly forever about the nature and the root of suffering. And that leads us up to the point that we find ourselves now, today. And we find that throughout this exchange with his friends, Job has been calling out to God for any sort of response. He's just going, God, can can I talk to you? But I want to look at a few of these verses. We haven't touched on it a lot so far, but a few of these verses. So Job chapter 30, verse 20, it says, I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, But you don't even look. This is an honest prayer. God, I'm calling out to you, and you're not even answering. I'm trying to catch your attention. You've ever been somewhere, and you're trying to wave at someone, and they just seem oblivious to you, and then the person behind that person feels like you're waving at them, and then it's awkward. This is what Job was experiencing. He just can't seem to get God's attention or an audience. Job 9.33, Job says, If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Now isn't that an interesting prayer for an Old Testament individual to pray? God, if only, if only there was someone, someone between us that, that I could talk to. It's like Job was saying, I needed Jesus. So even as we're looking at the story, isn't it interesting that Job's longing for something that now we get to sing about and celebrate? And be thankful for. That's what Job was asking for, is what we get the privilege of having. Job 29, 1 to 5. I long for the years gone by when God took care of me. When he lit up the way before me and I walked safely through the darkness. When I was in my prime, I love this line, God's friendship was felt in my home. The Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. So there's something in Job that's longing for this point where he knew the closeness of God. He knew an an intimacy with God. I love that picture of the friendship of God was felt in my home. And now he feels like he's in a spot where God's just lifted his hand right off him. Feels alone, feels isolated, and his prayer is just, God, please, please, can I, can I have an audience with you? So have you ever heard God speak to you Before? Like would you say, yeah, there's been moments where I knew God was leading me, or maybe you've heard him, like, audibly speak to you. And I want you to think about those kind of moments right now. Have you been in those spots where you've known God's closeness? Maybe it was in a, in a church service. Maybe it was somewhere else, but Where God just met with you. It was like he was in the room right beside you. So now you you contrast that with these moments where God seems like he's quiet. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of spot? Where it feels like you're knocking, but God's not answering. Answering. It's a difficult spot, and, and what, does that, what does that feel like for you? What does that do in your heart when you, like, I, I've known the closeness of God. I've heard him speak, and now it's like he lifted his hand right off my life. And there's that crazy period between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament where God's quiet for hundreds of years. Now imagine going through that, where, the, where they don't have the voice of God, the leading of God. And I was reflecting on this just in my own life. This journey through Job has actually been like going, recombing through stories in my own history, and my relationship with God, very much so for me. But it's in these kind of times where you're struggling to hear God, where I've always found it's like he's teaching me to learn to listen again. And usually when, when God's silent in my world, it's, it's one of these things where he's almost gone. what was the last thing I said to you? Or can we get back? To the point where maybe it went quiet. What shifted? What changed? We'll revisit some of that in just a moment. But In this story, Job makes these prayers. And finally, towards the end of the whole book, God speaks. John 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. isn't that a pretty powerful way for God to respond? Job's been pestering him with questions now for some amount of time and then God just says, "Listen, you're going to need to brace yourself because I have a few questions for you." But I also love that that he speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. All through this book, you find that God speaks in so many different ways to people. And I love that that's how God works because it's a helpful reminder for us that God doesn't get stuck in a pattern or a predictable way. And when we think we've got him cornered and we think we have a formula so he will do everything that we want him to do, These kind of stories and moments remind us that God's bigger, God's greater, and he just might speak differently. So he speaks to Job in a whirlwind here, but then if you'll recall, there's a prophet Elijah that God's going to speak to, and he doesn't speak through a rushing wind. He speaks in a whisper in that case. Then in Acts chapter 2, there's a sound of a mighty rushing wind again. And there's this contrast that happens, but it's a reminder that for us, when we want to hear God speak, we actually need to be broader in our listening and not just go, well, this is how he spoke before. This is how he's going to do it again. Because maybe God's actually going, hey, I actually want you to draw closer to me. I don't want you to get stuck. I want to do something new but it requires us to engage on a different level so that maybe we won't miss a new way that God wants to speak to us. Now, I would hazard to guess that God's response to Job is a little bit different than what Job was expecting. And if I was in Job's shoes, I would certainly uh, have expected a different response. A few things that God says. Job 38:4 he says, uh, "Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth?" Job 38:12: Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east?" Job 38:33: Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Are you getting a theme here? Are you picking up a little bit of what God's trying to communicate to Job? Job comes to God saying, please, if I could just have an audience. And God's response is essentially... Just to ask Job if he even understands how basic things of nature work and if he could be the one in charge. Do you even get? Like, are, are, you, are you calling the sun to rise in the morning? But then God goes on to talk about two creatures One is called the Behemoth, and one is called the Leviathan. And we're going to touch on these mostly just because they're really cool. And um, when you start looking at them, it's almost like, uh, in my head, creatures from a Jurassic Park movie. And I'd love to read the whole section, but just for time, we'll keep going. But there's one that's called the Behemoth. And it's described as this massive, powerful creature with a tail that's like a cedar tree. Like a tail like a cedar tree. It's not like a little dog's tail wagging. It's not some small creature. This is big, massive animal. This is what it says in Job 40, 24. No one can catch it off guard or put a ring in its nose and lead it away. So there's this picture of this big, massive, powerful creature that, yeah, nobody's going to be in charge of. Then Job 41, 1-5, we hear God talk about this Leviathan, and this seems even more intense than the behemoth. But it says, can you catch Leviathan with a hook or put a noose around its jaw? Can you tie it with a rope through the nose or pierce its jaw with a spike? Will it beg you for mercy or implore you for pity? Will it agree to work for you, to be your slave for life? Can you make it a pet like a bird or give it to your little girls to play with? So he's describing this massive, powerful creature that doesn't make a nice house pet, that you can't tame, and that you can't control. And uh, in studying these, these are these kind of things in the Bible that many people will kind of have different points of view on. So there's one commentary I was reading, and they essentially said, oh yeah, the behemoth is just a hippo or an elephant, but when I think of a hippo's tail, I don't think of a cedar tree. It's that tiny little thing with some wispy hairs. Or, uh, same commentary says that this leviathan is, oh, it's the crocodile. And um, this is one of those things where you can open up this giant can of worms on timelines and dinosaurs and the overlap of Job's timeline with Noah and the ark. And uh, were these dinosaurs or were these some other kind of creatures that we don't know about? Is it metaphor? But Pastor Bill can do that when he's back from vacation. But something about these just doesn't seem to line up with a hippo or a crocodile. That's all I'll say on it. But what God's doing here is he's again reinforcing this picture through these creatures that seem terrifying and untamable for a human. And God's going like gushing about them. Like, who can control it? It's too big. It's too great. Where God's... It's like this is something he's so proud that he made. And it's so wild. And God goes, but I I made this too. I made you and I made this. I make the sun rise and set. I put planets into place, and it creates this incredible contrast between who Job is and who God is. He's going, you can't even control things on earth. There's creatures too great for you. So how are you going to presume to advise or to guide me? And this, you can read through those chapters, 38 to um, 41 yourself, but essentially the summation of God's response to Job is really to just say, uh, consider where where you kind of sit in this equation. This is who you are, and this is who I am. And that's the summation of his response, which is why This series has been called No Easy Answers. It's because God didn't just explain everything perfectly for Job, and it almost feels like we can try and go, well, here's exactly what God was meaning by this, and we can try and cram meaning, but God's basically just going, I'm massively big and powerful, and you're Job. And it almost feels like you cheapen it by trying to add more than what God said in his response. And then we get to Job's response back to God. And I'll read through a few things, but to me, it really seems like Job gets the message from God very, very clearly. So, Job 40. Verse 3 to 5, it says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. So Job's going, I may have shot off from the mouth just a touch there. And um, maybe I, I was a bit bold in what I said. I'm just going to cover my mouth. I'm going to be a bit more quiet, and I'm just going to learn. Then he replies again in Job 42. Job says, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Then listen to this line. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes, to show my repentance. So Job comes back incredibly humble and with a clear understanding of where he sits before God. But just think about that one line. I'd only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Almost makes me kind of curious as to what shifted in that relationship, right? You can hear about something, right? I could tell you about a delicious apple that I found and was eating, and I could tell you the texture and the crunch has the right amount of sweetness, the right amount of tartness to it. You've heard about it, but you've not actually tasted it. And then all of a sudden, if I give you the same kind of apple and you taste it, all of a sudden these things that you've heard about now become something that you understand, that you've experienced. Where it moves from just something that is distant to something that's very close. And it makes me wonder this process of, of Job's suffering if there wasn't something that occurred that just shifted Job's understanding of who God is through this time. I'd heard, but now I've seen. And if you've been through a period of suffering in your life, maybe you can identify with this as well. I can say from my own story that when I've gone through difficult seasons of my life, there's moments in there where I've known God closer than in periods where I've said, oh, I'm blessed. Everything is tremendous. There's promises that you don't uh, understand. You've heard about them, but until you're living them, not maybe seen them face to face. You've not experienced them. So consider a promise where God says, I'll I'll be a husband to the widow or I'll be a father to the orphan. Sounds beautiful, but who wants to go through that? To know God as Father to the orphan, it means that something happened here that's left you as an orphan. Verses where you've turned my mourning into dancing. We just sang that. It means that you were in a spot where you had reason to be mourning. And you don't experience this moment where joy comes from mourning if you weren't firstly starting from a place of mourning. And I'm curious if, if this is what Job's alluding to here, of going, man, something shifted, something changed in how I knew you because of this time that we've just gone through. And I think for me, I've learned that I never want to seek out times of suffering. I don't want to be a person who's looking for tragedy. So, God, if you just bring me tragedy, I would learn to know you closer. I wouldn't personally pray that prayer. But I think I have learned that when I find myself in those moments, one of the worst things I could do is not learn everything I can in that time. I wouldn't seek it out, but looking back, I'm thankful for those times, but sometimes I need a bit of distance from them before I kind of find the value in them. And I was reminded too how there's that uh, one quote that says, calm seas don't make for great sailors. Now we come to the point of the resolution of the story. So this is where it just gets beautiful again. Job 42, verse 7. It said, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite. This is one of Job's three friends that came and argued with him. He said, I am angry with you And your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. When Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep. That seems like a lot of sheep. 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen. And 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He names his uh, daughters very complicated names. It says, in all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. The end. So a few things from this section. Uh, Notice that God corrects Job's friends, but not Job in the same way. He says, I'm angry with you because, well, frankly, you've misrepresented me. But Job didn't. I think what's annoying about that is that God speaks in metaphor to Job, and then to these friends that he's angry with, he basically goes, yeah, so here's the whole deal, like really clearly and really plainly. And Job must have been like, can I get that much clarity on what I just went through? You speak in metaphors to me, and these guys just get it really clearly. But here's what's cool in, in the middle of this correction God tells Job's friends to go offer a burnt offering, and then he says that they should go and have Job pray for them. And all of this happens before Job is restored and wealth and family and kids and everything comes back. And I love how in the middle of this story, if I was Job, I could have been like, it's been great having this intense discussion with you. I'll probably never see you again now. To his friends, but God says, no, no, no. In the middle of this, we're going to put relationship first. So before anything gets restored, the first thing that comes back is the relationship between Job and his friends. Isn't that a significant thing? God cared that Job's friends and Job were restored to relationship. Is there any relationship that you're in a spot where you're going... I think I actually need to get this relationship made right. What's on the other side of you mending a relationship, putting relationship first? Another interesting thing that I notice in this section is that friends returned to Job that had dropped him like a rock during his time of suffering. And um, in the message... In Proverbs fourteen twenty, it says, An unlucky loser is shunned by all, but everyone loves a winner. So isn't it fascinating that in this story Job's buddies and relatives just ditch him when he's in the bottom and then all of a sudden he's got fourteen thousand goats and they're like, Hey Job, we haven't caught up in a while. You think we and then they just bring him money and rings. But wouldn't that have been helpful during the time of suffering as well? And that's where I love when a, a verse like Proverbs fourteen 20, it, it's true. You hear about those lotto winners whose distant friend from grade 9 calls them 30 years later and says, we were tight in grade 9. Do you think you could cut me a little bit of that lottery winning? It's fascinating. Nothing's really changed throughout history. And then we find that Job has double of everything. If you compare the numbers from Job chapter 1 to the numbers in Job 42, it's literally double everything as far as his livestock and wealth. Double of everything. And then there's this interesting um, part where he has three daughters that are incredibly beautiful. Um. And it makes you wonder what the daughters before looked like, if now these ones are mentioned as extremely beautiful. Why include the contrast? I don't know. But then also cool is that Job includes them in his will. This would have been totally against the custom of that time. So this is this outward picture of something changed during this time of Job's suffering. Even how he related to his daughters now had shifted. And there's something I, I'd have to do further study, but just to me, there's something beautiful in that part that is included in this story. And then he lives 140 years after that lives to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. In another translation of the Bible, it says that Job lived a long and full life. And I love that picture. A long and full life. He'd look back 140 years later from this point of suffering, and he'd reflect through the long lens of history on a life well-lived in spite of this tragedy. So I just have two final thoughts on this book of Job, and then we're going we're gonna to take some time to pray. i have committed to praying for people who are sick or need a miracle every Sunday this month. But two final thoughts. I'm sure there could be lots more. I think we need to clarify our theology on what it means to be blessed and what it means to suffer. One of the books I was reading made note that um, if Job's suffering wasn't a punishment then the blessing and restoration at the end wouldn't be seen as a reward. You Can't have it both ways, right? And we see in this story where God pours out two times as much as Job had before at the end of the story. God can pour out his blessings freely. All throughout Scripture, God just pours blessings out. There's no limit to it. So it leaves us in a spot where then how do we define suffering? Is it a lack of extravagant amounts of blessing? And at what point does it shift from blessing to suffering? Um, When we look at the world around us, we could say, oh man, this celebrity is blessed They've got a jet. They've got everything that they could ever think of or need. They have looks and fame and fortune. So is that blessed? Would you trade your current spot for theirs and just go, yeah, I'd take that for sure. They're so blessed. And if you wouldn't, why wouldn't you? Or if you would, how come? We also can't have a theology that only works in a Western context and doesn't work in a global context. We can't have promises of God that are limited to where you live on planet Earth or where you were born. So if our perceived lack of blessing or suffering could be conserved or, well, let's put it this way. If our idea of suffering from our Western perspective could be seen in another place as someone who's incredibly blessed, where does that leave our idea of what suffering and blessing are? so many questions and things to ponder when we look at this idea of suffering and blessing. And do you think Job valued what he had at the end a whole lot more than what he valued at the start? I think so. But I also don't think that receiving all of the children and the double wealth at the end, I don't think it just masked over the loss of the first batch of kids. Did it just evaporate, disappear? Did you forget them? I think we need to clarify and broaden our understanding of what it means to suffer, but also what it means to be blessed. Jesus says in Matthew 8, What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? The last thought. This entire book of Job to me seems like a call to trust God even when we don't understand everything. Even when everything isn't laid out perfectly clear, when God doesn't explain everything and doesn't include you in the planning meeting for the next stages of your life, this book is a reminder to trust Him even when we don't understand So what do we trust in in spots where we don't have the full picture? We trust in his character. We trust in his history. We trust in his faithfulness. We trust in his wisdom. We trust in, in who he's been and what he's done in our lives thus far. And this is what faith actually looks like. It's a steady trust in who God is regardless of our current situation. But it's not a passive or a dismissive faith. Job kept trusting God through the entire book, through massive high and massive low and everything in between. In Job 13.15, he says, God might kill me I hope in him. God might kill me, but I hope in him. And the more we know him, the more we trust him. If he's been faithful through you uh, to you through the highs, he's not going to be less faithful through a low. And once you've journeyed through the valley of the shadow of death, you've learned something more about who he is. And the next time you find yourself on a mountaintop, you thank God and you cry out to him the same way that you did when you were in the valley. No matter the season Job put God first in the, in the early sections of the book, he's the priest in his home. He's, a, he's making offerings for his kids in case they had broken covenant with God. When he's struggling and God's silent, he didn't stop pushing in, He didn't give up. He didn't just say, okay, God, I'm done with you. I'm not, obviously, you're not going to talk to And when he was restored, God's at the center of it again. Through every season, learning to trust in God. And I want to be like Job in my pursuit of God through every season. Trusting him in every season. I'm sure there's much more that could be said about this book. The one thing I know too is that it's caused me to want to know God even closer and not just like a surface level knowledge of God, but a deep, deep knowledge and relationship with God. And that's only forged when you've traveled with him through highs and through lows. So we want to take some time to pray this morning. We're going to pray for healing. We're going to pray for miracles. But just before we get to that, I want to take a moment where if you've been in a spot where this trusting God thing has become difficult I just want to pray for you and I'm not even going to get you to raise your hand or anything it can be a very personal thing and I know even for uh, myself as a leader, there's a weird thing that sometimes kicks in when somebody says, we're going to pray. And I go, what happens if this applies to me? Can I be vulnerable? I'm supposed to be leading. Ah! So we're going to remove all of that. But just for you, if you've been in a spot where you feel like, God, I don't know if I trust you maybe like I used to. And I just want to take a moment and pray for you. Just take 10 seconds right now. And if that you, take a moment, reflect, and then we're going to pray together. And we're going to pray for some healing and some miracles for people as well. Just take 10 seconds and reflect. God I thank you that through this journey through Job God through highs and lows we've seen the story of a God who can be trusted even when we don't get everything even when we can't understand even when it's beyond our ability to understand God we thank you that you're wise that you're loving and that you're trustworthy in the middle God, we thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're kind. We thank you that you're not here to destroy us. We thank you that you correct us. We thank you that you want to see us grow. And we thank you that you want to see us strong and thriving. So, Father, for those here who might be in a spot where they feel like their ability to trust you is faded. Father in the, in the gentleness of this moment, Father, I pray that you'd rebuild. Trust. Whatever that looks like and however that process starts, Father, we invite you here to remind us of who you are. Remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us who you are.